Hello and welcome to Room 16 of The Reading Room, brought to you from Siren FM. On this edition of The Reading Room, we speak to the poet John Hegling. I mean, it's about talking about stuff, which is what life is a bit. And we also have an interview with author and historian Tracy Borman. She was an incredible sort of force of power and independence for a woman. This was very, very rare at the time. We have some poetry from Elaine Kazimierchuk and Jamie Mackay brings us the musings of his muddled mind. Hi, I'm Richard Herring and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, autumn around these parts means the Wolds Words Festival. And in these financially challenging times, East Lindsay Council and Cultural Solutions and a host of sponsors managed to put on a wonderfully diverse program and importantly they include an education and outreach program getting people out of their houses and into the libraries and theatres now in an area with not many chimney pots and lots of fields this is a real achievement poet comedian and musician john hegley was one of the highlights at this year's festival and i spoke to him backstage after his performance of family wordship and found him in a reflective mood I'd like to welcome John Hegley to the reading room. Now, we're here at the wonderful Riverhead Theatre in, in Louth. You've come to the Wald's Words Festival. Tonight was a family atmosphere, a, family, yeah. a, family, a certain family show. Um, would you say your act was actually perhaps aimed at children and, and, and adults getting on the ride? I don't know. I'm interested in what you think of that. I mean, because there's, there's certainly things that you, the adults would think, oh, suddenly this is a bit more for us, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I guess there are quite a lot of things that the kids think this is for us. But I like to think there's quite a lot that's for everybody. Yeah. But there are bits that are for, for different parts of the audience, but it's sort of like in a conversation in a room. A child doesn't have to understand every bit. If they don't walk out of the room, you know, you, you can be engaged without being uh, t- addressed totally. Yes, and your, your experience obviously lets you, allows you to play the room and, uh, and evaluate the room. And to get a, a room full of people in Lincolnshire, I, moving the way you have done tonight, you know, uh, moving, moving the arm movements, moving animal movements, um, I would have said before that, that was quite a challenge, but I, I think, what I think, if you're yeah. <laughs> as soon as yes. you ask, is that um, the, the, the self-disclosure of things like your, your family, your father, your father appears quite a lot in, in, yes. in, 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 in there, it gives the audience a confidence in you. Well, that's very nice you say that. I mean, it's about... Yeah, but that's it, you see. I mean, it's about two things. It's about playing, and it's also about talking about stuff, which is what life is a bit. So I'm glad you see it like that. I mean, I do try to get this stuff over about the fact that I have some regrets about things, that how they weren't quite as they might have been, but that they were enough, and to celebrate what was there. Uh, and if you didn't do it then do it now you know we didn't have French in our in our house when I was a kid so I'll have the French now um, and make a celebration out of it and almost turn it it's almost better to have it now and I think my dad would be very happy over here the French uh, I, I need to work on the Zutalor bit I was trying to write a little poem about Zutalor but I, and I got a rhyme because I was looking for the rhyme and, it's, and I think it's he dropped his bottom jaw and he went Zutalor but I got it. If he saw something in France that was shocking, and, that, and it makes me think, well, what get the kids to say? What do you think would be really surprising? That'd yeah. be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And just a law. <laughs> yeah. What do you think would make you say that? A, a spider. Yeah. See, but that's, <laughs> it, but that's exactly it. And then you, but, but I hadn't thought of that because it's only just now as we're sort of chatting that I think because I was thinking now I, I must think of it. But sometimes. They can think of it. Yeah, so it, actually post-show as we are now, is, is that something you come back and, re- and reflect on and, and think, you know, how can this evolve? How can it move Yeah, forwards? I would have thought, of, yeah. I mean, it's obviously interesting that having a chat about it and in a way that's sort of what you do when you're in ensemble work. And, you know, I'm sort of quite on my own a lot of the time with this. Um, so it's quite nice to have this chat. 
You say that you're on your own. I mean, is that, is that when you do your writing? I'm quite interested as to when and how you do your writing. Do you keep a notebook with you? How, how does it how does it happen? Uh, I, I write in my diary. <laughs> I've been or I have been today. Uh, so yes, I do have a notebook. Sometimes I write on the backs of the brown bags that I have on the train to have the tea in. Um, sometimes I've written uh, writing on the back of uh, receipts, matchboxes. Um, I don't I don't sort of compose with the typing at the moment. You say at the moment, is that? Well, it might be, you know, I mean, I, because I've got a typewriter, so I'm moving it <laughs> towards, I've been type, composing on a typewriter. I think so. I mean, I mean actually, that interactivity that, that, that's upon us now, I mean, I see on your, on your internet site, so you're moving towards Twitter and things like that, or? Well, uh, I'm trying to, yeah. I mean, I've only, I think I've sent four tweets. So, you know, I, 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 but it, uh, you've got to try and move with the time. And my brother says, you've got to get on there, you know. So I'm trying to. And it does say, well, you've got a huge following. For those amount of tweets, you've got, you know, over 3,000 following. Right. So. <laughs> right, but that you know that sort of doesn't mean a great deal there, does it? Well, I know, no, I don't know because I haven't had very much to say. So you know, but maybe something will come. Something interesting I read in Stuart Lee's book, and he quoted you on yeah. this, uh, is is regards um, if you can get a few thousand people to yeah. pay you ten pounds or so or so a year, you know, you can make a living out of this. I mean, that's that's encouraging for for people who want to work in the arts, surely. Yeah, I think um, plodding around. Just plodding around, doing <laughs> the gigs. There's a lot to be said for that. Um, finding gigs, making gigs, making your own gigs. It was sort of very good that the, this has been put on. And I, I just thought, this is really nice that these people have had the chance to come at this. And people who came up to me said they hadn't seen me before and had enjoyed it. And to have a sort of group of adults and kids. I mean, in France, I think it happens more often. That, like in a bar that there would be children in the audience. In England, we tend to segregate it off. Yeah. So it was really nice to have a show that wasn't a kids' show, but it was a show that kids could be engaged in. It was really nice. Absolutely. Really lovely audience, I thought. So since we started the Reading Room programme about 18 months ago, I'd not really addressed poetry itself as an art form. I'd been surrounded by it, obviously, in things from adverts to songs to nursery rhymes to, you know, it's there, it's in my everyday life, but I'd not actually addressed it. Um, and what we like to do on the Reading Room is make... Uh, words accessible yeah. uh, and I, I think would you say that's where you represent poetry and the accessibility yes but I think lots of poetry is I mean Adrian Mitchell his phrase was most people ignore most poetry because most poetry ignores most people to which I would add that most porcupines ignore most putty because it's quite high up and they're sort of scrubbing around on the floor and you can't really get to it in the window frames Great advice from John Hegley. And uh, take a look at John Hegley's Word Wild website. Uh, you can link to it from our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Uh, and advise that if he's coming to an art centre near you, then go along and see his brilliant show. And thanks to our friends at Cultural Solutions for setting that interview up. This is Brendan Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Time now for some poetry, and recently I went along to an open mic night in Nottingham called Shindig. It's put on by our friends at Left Lion magazine, and I heard quite a few performers that we'll hopefully be bringing to you over the coming months, and the first of these is Elaine Kazimierczuk, who recently captured my attention with poems that paint a picture for you, but leave you to colour bits in for yourself. Generosity is the first of two poems from Elaine. The harvest surplus and the giving of it all away is something she looks forward to each year and carefully reuses certain bags, saved specially for this purpose. Waterstone's little plastic sacks, the size they use for paperbacks that one might buy to read on holiday, glib novelette, chiclet, that sort of stuff, if they should be on special offer, three for two, that is, 
are thick enough to hold a pound of plums or greengages for pies, and stylish black with their logo and some witty literary quotes in gold, and consequently perfect for members of her reading group, especially the elite whose job it is, when autumn comes, to meet somewhere clandestine to select the new anthology that will become their poetry gazette. They are all of them extremely old, that set, and slightly strange. Except for Anthony, who makes an annual pilgrimage to the Hay Festival and has been known to stay for the entire duration at the Swan, taking an ensuite room, referring to this as enforced rest and recuperation. He is provided privately with plain brown paper bags of the best fruit, modestly chased with the piety of unmarked bloom. It's been four years since he divorced. Why did he ever marry her, the banker's daughter? It was clear from the start it wouldn't last. She broke his heart. He looks so thin, poor dear. He has expensive taste in shoes, she notes. For windfall apples which she likes to distribute ad lib to those she knows less intimately at her Madrigal Society, 6.45 until half nine on Tuesdays, she chooses the sturdy Waitrose Carrier. A dozen of these will fill up her car boot. Some of the fruit is bruised, but then the older women, who are also stalwarts of the WI, have thrifty ways to deal with such a glut. Whilst Tesco bags, of which she has a quantity and, though thin, are only ever used to line her pedal bin. Our thanks to Elaine Kazimierczuk with generosity there, and uh, she'll be back later on in the programme with another poem. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. This is Tony Hawkes. The book I would recommend is a little-known book called The Seven Myths of Love by Mike George because it's quite revolutionary in a way, in the way it debunks what love is and how we've completely misunderstood it. And since this is the one energy that governs our entire life and how much we enjoy it or not, it would seem to me quite sensible to get to grips with what it really is and this book really helps with that. I'm Paul Tyler. You're listening to The Reading Room and we're lucky enough to be nominated for a European Podcast Award uh, in the professional category uh, and there's still time to vote. So if you go to our website, readingroom.podbean.com uh, you can see the link on the right-hand side of the page there, European Podcast Awards. Uh, takes you straight there. If you've voted already, thank you very much and if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Hi, I'm Richard Herring. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham. Hi, this is Mark Kermo. This is Katie Price. This is Tony Hawkes. This is Karen Maitland. This is Brandon Cleary. And you're listening to The Reading Room. The Reading Room. The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time to hear from the author and historian Tracy Borman. Tracy's books focus on strong female characters throughout history. Her previous work concerning Henrietta Howard and Elizabeth I. For her latest book, Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror, Tracy brings to life Matilda of Flanders, the diminutive yet formidable wife of William the Conqueror. I started our interview by asking Tracy how she discovered Matilda. I was read a novel by Hilda Lewis, who was a very prolific historical novelist. In the sort of 50s, um, she began publishing. And her novel about Matilda was so engrossing, so captivating, that I, I read it and was just 
instantly hooked and I wanted to find out the real story and that's why I began the research to find out how much of it was true. And you say begin the research, uh, the, the, the bibliography of the, of, the, of the book, it seems a colossal amount of research, <laughs> yes. I mean just talk us through that. I think the bibliography is longer than the book actually, it is, <laughs> it is quite sizeable. I spent um, many happy days and, and weeks in the British Library you know just adding to my bibliography and it's a period that I'd got such a misconception about it when I first started in that I'm a Tudor historian primarily. And so I thought, well, the sources are going to be really scarce for the 11th century. And I couldn't have been more wrong. You know, really, really rich. So there was a great story to tell. Okay, and that story, tell us about Matilda. Matilda, where does one start with Matilda? Well, she's a very shadowy figure in history because everybody's heard of William the Conqueror. Um, Of course, 1066 is the most famous date in English history. But Matilda... Really, the comment that I'm getting quite a lot since publishing this book is, you know, I didn't know William had a wife. If they know about her at all, then perhaps it's that she was very prolific in producing children. She had at least nine children and therefore established the Norman dynasty. So she fulfilled the expected role of a consort. But she went so much further than that. She ruled Normandy during William's many military campaigns. And when he conquered England, she came over here and was vital to the kind of Norman PR effort in winning over the English people. So she She was an incredible sort of force of of power and, you know, independence for a woman. This was very, very rare at the time. And yet she just got it. She just had this kind of political acumen that just gave her such a powerful role. Tell us more about the, the relationship between William and Matilda. It didn't begin well. William was keen on the idea of marrying Matilda. Um, Her father's province, Flanders, bordered his own Normandy, and so it was a great alliance for him. And equally, Matilda's father was also very keen on the match because William of Normandy was this great, powerful, young leader. But nobody thought to ask Matilda her opinion, and when they did, she said that she would not lower herself so far as to marry the base-born Duke of Normandy, because, of course, William was illegitimate. William was furious when he heard this, and legend has it, he rode straight over to Flanders, found Matilda in her father's palace, dragged her by her hair and rolled her about in the mud until she agreed to become his wife, which is what has, has gone down in history to us as, as you know, fact. It was shrouded in controversy. Matilda, we know, did object to William as a husband. She did then change her mind. We're not sure why. I do put forward one quite scandalous theory in my book. But despite all this controversy and the fact the papacy actually banned their marriage because they the couple were distantly related, despite all of that, it became one of the most successful partnerships in history there you say you, you put forward a theory and uh, and this is this is a, an intriguing part of, uh, of, of your job as a historian I yeah. suppose the, the big difference with writing about an early period such as the 11th century is just the temptation to um, to interpret a lot more because you do have the sources were much richer than I thought as I said but even so they are more scarce than say the Tudor period or the Georgians and so therefore the temptation is to sort of fill in the gaps where we don't know and of course you can't do that as a historian you you absolutely have to just be straight with your readers if there is a gap in our knowledge you can theorize but you have to be absolutely straight and say you know we don't know it could be this or um, it could be the other and of course medieval historians are often criticized then for that and and you know the reviewers often pick up on the fact that oh well it's a bit sort of airy fairy and she hasn't said either way well you can't I, I believe quite strongly you can't lead 
your reader if you're writing non-fiction. Yeah, exactly, because we, we were speaking a couple of months ago now to Karen Maitland, who's historical fiction. Yes. And I asked her the question about, you know, how much she relies on, on the, the fact of history. But then, obviously, then she can blend and characterise, and you can't. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and I would love to write novels in the future, just to have that freedom to sort of explore the what-ifs. But I think you can't insult your readers. You can't insult their intelligence. They, could, they can make up their own mind. You can give your own opinion, as long as if it's very clear that that's, that's what it is. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and in your in your introduction, uh, you, you use a brilliant phrase, of the historical Chinese whispers. Yes. Uh, do, you have a, do you have a system that, I don't know, helps you sort out the wheat from the chaff, if you like? Yeah, I I think um, particularly for this period because a lot of the chroniclers based their accounts on the same original source and so you can go back to that original source um, which obviously has got quite a bit of truth in it because it's um, it can be it can be verified but that's where the Chinese whispers come from you can see these various different chroniclers over a period of about 200 years all use this source but they all told it in very different ways Um, but yes you have to have your eye on who wrote the source why it was written particularly for a subject like um, Anglo-Norman history where you've got the Normans sort of post post rationalizing the conquest whether or not they made it up I'm not sure there's fierce debate but um, for example they they say that Edward the Confessor promised the throne to William the Conqueror did he we're not sure uh, but it certainly helped William to then establish his rule in England afterwards so it, it's it's a murky world of medieval sources but fascinating I see and we always like to look in a little bit of detail at the writing process itself so you as a writer you've collated your your research is it a case of all the research first and then knuckle down to the writing is that is that your system that that's how I wrote my first two books and um, I did something completely different from Matilda actually in that I researched and wrote as I went Went along because in order to get a book published unless you know you've published loads and you can literally just send a one-line email to your publisher saying I want to write about Mary Queen of Scots um, when, when you're a relatively new author like me you have to write a quite detailed proposal so that proposal then becomes the skeleton of the book and really then you start your research and whatever you find you sort of slot it in to the relevant bit of your proposal so it, it gradually becomes more and more fleshed out I have to say that method is much more efficient it's much quicker but it's not as enjoyable as just allowing yourself to research do nothing but research for the first year 18 months and then write it up but the trouble with that of course is you've got the writing looming in the distance and you know you've got to finish the research in order to give yourself enough time to write and then follows the editing process exactly so it's never ending you're also labelled as a history girl alongside uh, Alison Weir Kate Williams and uh, Sarah Griswood Uh, how did that come about? that came about from a Radio 4 uh, programme we were on um, Woman's Hour and um, they were basically interviewing us about our different sort of interests in history and why there should be more women um, in sort of high profile roles in, in history and particularly on, on television and, and we were all around at Kate's flat actually and she, she cracked open the champagne and she got all this cake and so you basically just hear us kind of you know the champagne flowing and it's just a chat really and we had a, we had a real laugh doing it and um, it sort of captured the imagination of the, of the media and that we became known as the history girls and we started doing joint events together joint talks and then in April this year we published our first joint book which was a, a history of royal weddings which which was great fun so hopefully we'll do more of the same okay so how does that writing relationship work you all write a, a different section yes we did we did we did it chronologically so um, I actually wrote the most modern section so I'd, I was literally writing this at the same time 
time as Matilda, so I was going from the 11th century, one of the most obscure women in history, to writing about Lady Diana, who was then, of course, Princess Diana. So it was quite surreal. It was a, it was a very, very contrasting process. Now, what, you talk about Matilda's legacy. What, what do you think Matilda's legacy is? I think it was an incredibly powerful legacy because she carved out a new role for the Queens of England. She wasn't content just to be this passive consort that we'd seen before. And indeed, in the past, uh, the Saxon queens had sim- simply been referred to as the wife of the king. They hadn't even been called queen, whereas Matilda carved out this powerful, active model of queenship and inspired generations to come. And that's why I always say that William might have been the conqueror, but Matilda was the real winner. And Matilda, Queen of the Conqueror, is published by Jonathan Cape and available now. And for more information on Tracy Borman, go to tracyborman.co.uk or follow the links from our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Okay, now, time for some more poetry from Elaine Kazimierczuk. This is Merchandise. Lately, it seemed as if she spent her days torn by the agony of choice. God, 15 different kinds of mayonnaise. I really need to see your face, to hear your voice. It seemed as if she went from aisle to aisle, sleepwalking through a dazzling maze of merchandise. I miss your smile. I even miss your silly jokes, your funny ways. She chooses half-price salad for herself and sensibly replaces on their shelf eight jars of Indonesian spice. But she does not put back the pack of fragrant rice. She uses the self-checkout and then pays, but someone at the exit says, it's raining steroids out there. So she waits, just for a little while, until the storm abates. And after, as the clean, wet car park shone and steamed, a blackbird broke into song. (laughs) I must be daft to think just then. I heard your laughter. I throw this to the wind But what if I was right Well did you trust your noble dreams And gentle expectations to the mercy of the You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now it's time for Jamie Mackay to bring us the musings of his muddled mind. Today I woke too weak to walk. That's my favourite song lyric ever. It's by Stephen Sondheim. The way it scans and what it says in seven words says more than most songs could say in seven minutes. All of which got me thinking, I ought to name and shame some of the worst song lyrics I know. Thin Lizzy's Jailbreak has the immortal line, There's gonna be a jailbreak somewhere in this town. Well, I'm no Columbo or even Bob Cryer from The Bill, but I would go as far as to hazard a guess that it just might possibly be in the jail. Deacon Blue's Real Gone Kid has the chorus, and you're a real gone kid, and maybe now, baby, I'll do what I should have did. Now, that's not even proper English. And don't talk to me about poetic licence, it's just lazy, and it's probably one of the reasons the country's in the state it's in today. Well, that and steps getting back together, obviously. It wouldn't have taken them two minutes to change the song slightly and make it about a purchase from Greg's that's gone past its sale-by date and the regret of the owner has of not throwing it out before it went a bit off. And you're a real gone bun. Maybe now, baby, I'll do what I should have done. 
He's Jamie Mackay, so we don't have to be. Thanks very much to Jamie, and uh, he's uh, musing over his muddled mind as we speak for next month. This is Peter Kerr, and you're listening to The Reading Room. Thanks for listening to Room 16 of The Reading Room. I'm Paul Tyler, and The Reading Room is produced by Johnny Hall.